Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 10th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Noah Rothman is still out with me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. As we record this, uh, American diplomat Wendy Sherman is meeting with a Russian counterpart to discuss the increasing tensions between the West and Russia uh, in regard to Russia's ambitions toward Ukraine. And um, the tone is very bleak. You know, ordinarily when when American diplomacy is uh, sort of underway, uh, the diplomats and the press corps that, that cover uh, the diplomats, which is now much smaller than it used to be, um, tends to take an almost absurdly optimistic view because, of course, it's this belief that negotiations are the be-all and end-all of all existence and they're just so wonderful and negotiations mean just the most wonderful comedy between nations and everything is just going to be fantastic and this is really what we want. We don't want tension. We want conversation. That is not the way that this is being characterized. This seems to be uh, an extraordinarily pessimistic uh, approach uh, on the part of our diplomats, the way they're talking to reporters and the way reporters are handling this is though they, they fully expect whatever this conversation is to fail because the Russians are making preposterous demands of the West and uh, the West can't accept them. And now the West has to threaten Russia with untold consequences if it decides to make moves on ukraine's territorial sovereignty not that it already hasn't made moves on ukraine's territorial sovereignty with all with not that much uh, cost incurred some cost but not a huge amount of cost and um i just, i'm i'm fascinated because i just i don't remember uh another major diplomatic initiative by the west toward a you know an an, an adversary country of some sort that wasn't considered a sort of wonderful advance in world civilizational discussion. Abe, what do you uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is due to the fact that um, what's coming out of Moscow is really um, it's uh, the kind of thing that's sort of not of this century in in terms of tone. Um, it's pure demands. I mean that that is that's that's. That's what they've laid out. Uh, Putin demands that uh, the West, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, not build up militar- militar- militarily um, uh, in in what Russia con- conceives of as its sphere of influence. It demands that uh, uh, the, the end of NATO expansion. Um, these are not, you know, there's 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 none of the. Um, Sort of the 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 fluff that you can grasp onto and paint as common ground, uh, as as there so often is, even even when that's not real. There's 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 really nothing there for that. I, I was wondering, actually, uh, speaking of deja vu all over again over the weekend, although she was speaking about it in terms of 
COVID and the pandemic. Uh, Kamala Harris used that that word malaise, which should never pass the lips of a democratically elected official uh, uh, an official of the Democratic Party. But she used it. And I, it, that's what I was thinking when I was reading all the these reports. I mean, Russia has moved troops near into in near Kazakhstan as well. It's not just Ukraine. There's a bunch of issues that have been allowed particularly post-Afghanistan withdrawal, to just fester. And that's going to be a problem for the Biden administration. Because remember, Mr. I'm going to be tough on, you know, I'm not Putin's pawn. I'm going to be tough on Russia. All of his promises, uh, the American people are now looking at him to fulfill with regard to Russia. And I think Russia has took one look at Afghanistan and said, ha, great, free reign for us. And, and they weren't wrong. I'm not sure that they've been allowed to fester. I mean, oddly enough, uh, the the West has been taking a pretty strong tone almost from the outset of the the recent building Russian potential aggression against Ukraine. The problem is that it's all just words. Uh, I mean, there's some sanctions, but there the major step that it appears could be taken short of actual, uh, I mean, there are a couple of steps that could be taken short of actual hostilities, right? One of which is the, is the suspension or cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would directly transit oil from Russia to Germany, bypassing Ukraine uh, in an effort to make sure that um, Ukraine has no, strategic economic purpose for the west so that so that to to limit to limit the the need for the west to use the to the, to view ukraine as a necessary element in our in the world uh, oil strategy let's say um so that's that's one and um I'm now blanking uh, on on the other we have a new puppy and she was up at 4:30 this morning and it's about 10 of eight. So I'm a little, I'm a little vague, but, um, so, okay, hold on. We have the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, and what, I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll think of it at some point. I mean, there's sanctions, you know, if right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, there is, there is arming the, there is, I'm sorry. Now I remember it's rushing arms to, to you, to Ukraine, providing Ukraine with military. We're not, not, not even, not even actual American for just um, just throwing weapons, you know, dropping weapons on Ukraine to make sure that you know they can defend themselves to some extent, and also to send a signal that we are not afraid of lining up, at least lining up in if hostilities break out, that we are on the side of Ukraine and that we will do what we can do short of war to to have the Ukrainians resist the Russian depredation and seizure of their lands. Um, uh, and so neither of those seems to be on the table. Like there's a lot of saber. I mean, we're sort of doing kind of language rattling, you know, it's not even like saber rattling. It's a lot of, Ooh, you better do boy. You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> you know? And so, um, Unless unless there is a saber behind it, I don't know why why should why should Putin take it all that all that seriously? I mean, look, yeah, I mean, all, yeah go ahead. But you know, but my concern with with the Biden, you know, normally look, uh, foreign policy 
speaking, I'm I'm generally quite hawkish. Uh, uh, my my concern I don't think is the quite is a necessary right right yeah that's that's there you go qualification um, right you're you're right my concern in this particular case is that I fear that the anything the Biden administration uh, tries to threaten credibly they will be called on and not back it up um, and that will put us in a worse position because of, of exactly you know what what. Christine refers to um, the Afghanistan debacle. I think I think they have they have already sort of pre-signaled that um, any anything that anything resembling a credible threat is worth testing us on, and that's and that's that's a sort of dangerous position to to be in. There's also the other wild card here, which we haven't discussed, which is the position of the European Union, because all of this is, you know, a security in Europe issue. They're not part of the discussions that are starting today in Geneva. They're they're not there. And there's a lot of you know frustration on the part, I think, of some of the leaders in the EU that there's, you know, what the old conundrum about how much American influence and power do you want. But if we're talking to Russia and the EU is not at the table, that creates a whole nother set of problems in the EU right now. The leaders of the EU nations are not super confident in Biden's foreign policy leadership either. So it's not just that you know, Biden has some credibility issues with the American people and perhaps with with Russia, but with our allies. Uh, you know, there is a new chancellor in Germany, obviously, and 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 nobody really understands what that's going to mean. Germany has been a has been led by, you know, one person for 14, 14 years or 15 years or longer. Um, uh, and so, you know, she was a known quantity, Angela Merkel. And right now I can't even remember the name of the new German chancellor, which is which is bad on me as a former Jeopardy champion, but also a sign of the nature of the change in how Americans and we all view foreign policy and these matters. Like it used to be Olaf that, something. Olaf? Doesn't he Olaf right. Olaf. I just but, knew the Olaf. <laughs> but my, my my point is that it's not me, you know, editor of a magazine, whatever, like a minimally literate American person, uh dating back 20 years would have that name engraved on their, in their, in their heads from just simply reading articles. And, you know, the, these elections in Europe, uh, you know, in uh, France and particularly in France, England, Germany, um, were major and England still, you know, Britain still remains a kind of major subject, but uh, these are things that we don't pay all that much attention to. And it's very hard to find information about. And so, one of the things here is that uh, we're apparently going it alone because it's not clear the Biden administration has taken the measure of 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 any of these people. And and uh, Boris Johnson is being very inconstant from what we can tell. Hard to know where he stands or what he wants. And the 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 Germans now have this complicity here, problematic complicity because of the Nord Stream pipeline. Maybe that we cut them out because we do want to keep that in our, you know, that arrow in our, in our quiver uh, to, to do what we can do to halt the, the advance of the Nord Stream pipeline. And obviously Germany is going to do what it can to prevent us from, from taking that arrow out of the quiver. So we may have decided, I, I'm just guessing here, but we may have decided that we couldn't have them at the table because they, they could not, neg- they could not be part of a, tougher negotiation again i want to give 
at least a little lip service credit to the fact that it's clear that the Biden team, you know, Blinken and Sullivan and everybody that are aware of the enormous importance and danger here. And and we're talking about a world historical danger, which isn't just, you know, war on the European continent that ends up allowing Russia to reestablish imperial dominance over its near abroad. We're talking about agreements made uh, in 2014 to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine. uh, And that obviously provides a stand-in for the NATO collective security guarantee. One move like this unanswered means an almost certain test of Russia's ability to move on a member of NATO, presumably one of the Baltic states. And after that, that's it. Like that's the end of the post-war order. Um, And I know the post-war order is old now. I mean, it's 75 years old, literally 75 years, uh, you know, after World War II and orders don't necessarily last, but this has been a pretty great one all things considered, I mean, a sort of dazzlingly great achievement uh, that pacified Europe, among other things, completely pacified, you know, the place on earth where most world struggles originated from, you know, over the last 500 years had, had something had superseded it. And, um, and, you know, this one, this one guy from a second rank in economic power simply by by virtue of his will and uh, and ideological commitment to reestablishing his country's centrality in world affairs um, is is eating is eating NATO's lunch and 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 NATO may not survive this and so they they understand this it's very clear they're not naive they're not being foolish they're not it's just that they don't have a grasp of what tools they have at their disposal and nobody does. And of course, Biden has among the worst foreign policy ideas that any major American politician has ever had. I mean, in some ways, they're worse because they, they're practical. They're not ideological. You know, they're not like, oh, if we only do this and then we'll, we'll have cultural exchanges and then, you know, they'll dance here and we'll send concerts there and everything will be nice. He has sort of practical you know what? The world's a tough place. So we should cut this country into three and we should pull our unilaterally pull our troops out of Afghanistan because people are ready for it and all of this. And he's finally got his hands on the tiller. And his first major foreign policy decision is clearly going to be a wildly destabilizing event, uh, you know, a dividing line event in our time. So his team knows and presumably he knows and he's got no, you know, He's a, what? What is he willing to do? We just have have no idea. Um, I'm excited to uh, introduce a new advertiser on the Commentary Magazine podcast for 2022, Wealthfront. So the beginning of a new year is a great time to finally start doing things like you know diets, workout routines. Or thinking about setting up your financial future in a way that will benefit you, your family, and and uh, and everyone you love. Even if you don't plan on getting off your couch in 2022, 
you should at the very least do one responsible thing while you sit there. Check out Wealthfront.com. You can start investing in no time with Wealthfront's classic portfolio or make it your own with things that you care about like socially responsible funds, technology, crypto trusts, or hundreds of other investments. Wealthfront was designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. You don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill? Wealthfront helps you do that. Not sure how to rebalance your portfolio or what rebalancing is? Wealthfront does that for you automatically. Wealthfront is trusted with over $28 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. And the best part is their product is so simple yet powerful that it has a 4.9 stars out of 5 in the Apple App Store. Almost as good as the Commentary Magazine podcast. To start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, go to Wealthfront.com slash commentary. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash commentary. To start building your wealth, go to Wealthfront.com slash commentary to get started today. Um, so who doesn't understand what the hell people are saying about COVID? I am. I, I, we've completely lost the thread. There is no thread. The thread is gone. Well, Walensky went on TV uh, this weekend and said, what we can't say about the vaccinations anymore is that they prevent transmission, which, of course, everyone already knows. Like the CDC reputation, there have now been some some pretty stark poll numbers. Uh, uh, I should have them at my fingertips, but I do not. People don't trust the CDC anymore. And that's not just crazy conspiratorial Republicans. It's everyone. Everyone looks at this agency, looks at the people representing this agency and says, no, nah, I think I'll just trust my own judgment here, which of course, many of us have been saying is probably a wiser course in a lot of uh, considering a lot of their uh, strange and misleading guidance over the last two years. But it's now come to a point where even the Democratic voter who might, you know, otherwise have slavishly said, yes, yes, whatever Walensky and Fauci tell us, we will listen to. That's crumbling as well. So that just shows you how deep the rot is in terms of the, the public's perception of the public health bureaucracy. And the, the CDC is, is no longer on the, on the one hand, of course, it's, it's you know, overvigilant for people like us. Whatever. But for the super vigilant, it's, it's no longer vigilant enough either. Right. Because it's because it's wavering. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by this admission that, you know, it no, we can no longer say that it, it prevents transmission. Vaccination only prevents transmission at the level of herd immunity. That is why we seek herd immunity uh, and hope that herd immunity can be achieved through vaccination. And we know this because the diseases that have largely been eradicated or eradicated through herd through through you know herd immunity that is ballasted by vaccines. But vaccination is about keeping you safe. It is not about keeping others safe. That's why everybody theoretically has to get vaccinated. It's not oh you know what you're vaccinated so you're not going to spread disease. It is you get vaccinated so you don't get the disease and your kids don't get the disease. And then in ancillary terms over time, if you are not a good host, let's say, or, you know, or host, the human host isn't a good host for these diseases, then over time, 
a generation or two, the disease can be eradicated. But it's not something that happens in six months. That was never the promise. But this was where the messaging of both the Trump administration and then the Biden administration was wildly stupid about this. Right. So Trump didn't in in, both of them could have embraced a message that I think would have resonated more broadly with the public, which was the classic American message of individualism, like to say you don't want to get sick. Right. Do this thing. Take this shot, this amazing miracle shot that we've created because we're amazing America. (laughs) Put it, take the shot and then you won't get sick. It's great. But instead, there was like very mixed messaging from Trump. And then when Biden came in, it became a collectivist message of you have to do this because to not do this makes you irresponsible, which, of course, created this very predictable backlash, followed by, oh, and if you don't do it, we're going to issue unconstitutional mandates forcing you to do it and you will lose your job if you don't do it. That is not a message that resonates with people who have free will and the ability to exercise choice in their own health. And that's, I think, where Biden could have made that message. There was this brief opportunity when he took office after Trump was gone and had bungled a lot of the public health stuff to say, look, he bungled it. And there are people who want to do really draconian things, too. But here's the middle path we're going to take. We trust Americans. We want you to be healthy. Here's how we can try to end this, even though it's a virus that might not ever end. But this is how we can manage to live with it. Make the right choice. Like they could have done that, but they didn't. They chose not to do that. They are also, I should say, undermining by talking this way. They're undermining the virtue of the vaccine, by which I mean they say get vaccinated, get boosted. If you get it, Omicron in particular, the consequences are going to be very minimal to you. And we now have enormous amounts of evidence now over the last six weeks that that is true. If you are vaxxed, if you're vaxxed and boosted, the, the, you know, the effect of, of having a positive test uh, or the feeling that you're going to get from Omicron is very mild. I mean, I had it. My family had it. You know, it's not just anecdotal. We know from hospitalization rates and all of that, that this remains in that sense. The the hospitalization epidemic is, a, is an epidemic of the unvaccinated. Omicron is not an epidemic of the unvaccinated. Omicron is an epidemic of everybody. The question is what the effect is if you get it, right? So they're... They've now, when I say they've lost the thread, what I mean is that I don't know how it's, they, they have made the, the vaccine a, 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 you know, a sort of public obligation fetish thing, and now you can get it. So people who I would say are not anti-vaxxers, but anti-anti-vaxxers, and they're some friends of ours and people like that, have now, because we've been having this ludicrous moral fight over you know, over the, you know, how uh, you're proved to be a bad person if you get COVID. Like, you know, you're proved to be a bad, if you get COVID. Uh, Now they're like, aha, you see, now they're all getting COVID and now the shoe is on the other foot. But the vaccine has still been validated in some ways or more than validated by, by Omicron because now there are two levels of illness, uh, the unvaccinated are getting hospitalized and this is hitting them and it, there is a surge in hospitalizations and stuff like that and it's really bad. And the vaccinated are not really getting very sick at all. So the vaccines has been validated now in two different ways. You didn't get Delta if you had the, va- if you had the vaccine. 
back in the summer and early fall, and you got dealt, you got Omicron, but didn't get sick from it or didn't get, you got it. You got sick the way you could get ordinarily sick from anything. And they've screwed up again because they've now given, they've now, because of this inability to make these distinctions, they have now given sucker to the idea that the vaccination regime was useless and pointless and that there was some conspiracy to make you get this useless vaccine that has now been whose validity has now been disproven. I mean, but the thing, you know, if you are a uh, anti-vaxxer or an anti-anti-anti-vaxxer, um, you've been fetishizing or many of them have been therapeutic treatments this whole time. So if let's uh, let's say now because of various permutations in the in the virus and the and the strains, we could think of uh, the vaccine as an extraordinarily effective therapeutic. That's why. Why is that a knock? That's great. That you, is you, such a good point. You, you believe God. in therapeutics, yeah? That is a very original. That's a very original way to look at it, right? For 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 Omicron, it is the ultimate therapeutic. Um, but this idea. You know, I mean, this isn't a conventional vaccine, right? I mean, it, it's a it's it's got a different ideology. It was a revolutionary idea in using mRNA. It's not, you know, you take bits of the disease and you give yourself a small, a tiny little dose of the disease, and then your body kicks in fighting the disease and creates the machinery inside your body to fight the existence of this disease. This is an entirely different approach. And so it, the eradication of the illness, the promise, we're calling it a vaccine, and it is a vaccine, but it's not a, it's not a conventional vaccination approach. And therefore, it is in some sense a therapeutic. I mean, as I say, because it managed, because it met Delta and the original, you know, whatever the original was, right where it lived, it did have the effect of killing it off and preventing its 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 transmission then then the virus mutated and you can get it because it mutated to a as we, as I now understand it mutated to a lower level of efficacy precisely to evade the vaccine in other words like the vaccine pr- protects the lungs so omicron goes for other things other than the lungs but if it goes for other things other than the lungs, then you don't have a then you don't have right. a lung disease. Your oxygen levels don't drop. You know, it's funny because friends of mine who had had the original version of COVID when I got it said, "Get yourself an oximeter immediately," because all you really need to do is monitor whether your oxygen levels are dropping. And I was like, I don't think I don't nothing is compromised. Like, you know, I'm not. I don't have trouble breathing. I'm not having lung. You know, I have a sore throat, but I don't like have trouble breathing it's a almost a different disease in that respect because the original thing was a lung disease that killed people through screwing up their lung systems and this isn't um and they just got so used to not talking straight about these things because they had a larger mission and a larger message to impart that's why so picking up on something that, that Abe said earlier, that is why this is an interesting moment because their own 
true believers are breaking away. And we're seeing this fight between, for example, public sector unions, uh, particularly teachers, obviously teachers unions and other workers who don't want to to accept what the CDC is now saying, which a lot of us have been saying, which is we got to live with this. We're not shutting everything down every time there's a new strain. We cannot do that. That is not an effective way to run a to to run a society. So we're not going to do that. They are now attacking the CDC as well, saying, how dare you? We have to have more precautions. We have to lock down schools again. We have to do all these things to protect our workers. Of course, then it becomes, which is just base political positioning and power play by these unions. It's very transparent, but they're using this language and this kind of ammunition that the CDC themselves gave to them over the last two years and they're turning it back on the CDC saying you care more about the economy than about people's lives. I mean, all the stuff we have heard versions of from the Biden administration officials themselves is now being used against them. So it's an interesting moment for the for the rhetoric about this about this uh, pandemic. Okay, Abe, I want to I want to get into some just rank politics here. Um, one of the things we're hearing about the situation in the hospitals is that you know the hospitals are being overrun, but they're not being overrun in absolute terms. They're being overrun in relative terms because there are problems with hospital staffing, right? Healthcare workers have been have burned out. They're, they 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 quit. We already heard that like four million people, I think, in November switched jobs. Like a number. An, un, an unprecedented number because uh, there are so many job openings and people, you know, whatever. So there's, and so you can assume that a lot of that is coming from the healthcare sector. So everywhere you hear, like if you're, someone's looking for a home health, health aid, there are no home, home health aids to be had. If someone's sick and needs someone at home, you know, there's the hospitals shortages, shortages of healthcare workers at hospitals. Well, I'm sorry, but you know, we spent, six months talking about the un- the, the unintended consequences of the uh, COVID Relief Act in the spring. And the major unintended consequence of the COVID Relief Act was because it extended these $300 a week in federal unemployment benefits matched by $300 a week in many states and localities and their 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 unemployment benefits that that people were effectively getting paid thirty thousand dollars per annum not to work and this is an ancillary consequence of that people maybe stayed home didn't work one person in a two-earner family stayed home didn't work and they banked the money that they got from the from the um you know from the unemployment benefits and gave themselves some leeway, which is, you know, that's what happens when you provide a, a sort of a, a universal benefit. And so this surge and our capacity to handle it is, I think, going to be seen as another consequence of failed Biden policies that were designed to address the COVID emergency that may have exacerbated it. And, you know, again, it's it's something that the Biden administration dismissed, you know, uh, when when people like us were concerned about it, um, that we were, you know, poo pooed. Um, so, yeah, there there is that there is the fact that they are getting paid not to work in combination with this public health regime that has resulted in this perpetual kind of soft opening of the country. Like we're we're not. You know, there's, there's, there's the, the message still isn't, 
okay, show up. We're done. This is this is this is pre twenty twenty, you know. So there there is still this permissibility about about not really showing up yet. Uh, aside from the fact that you can now afford that, but there's this you know sort of understanding that we're not there yet. You know, it, that's a good point because you see that, it, and that has such a, a pernicious trickle down effect in terms of both the economy and just in in social relationships in particular. So in DC, for example, we now have, as, as Omicron spread, our ridiculous mayor did a lot of stupid things as, as is her want. But one of the dumbest was to suddenly become incredible. She reissued the indoor mask mandate and now has a vaccination card requirement, but you can technically be absolutely contagious with a version of Omicron fully vaxxed and boosted and go to a restaurant. You have to do the theater of wearing your mask as you walk in and then take it off and eat and drink and have fun. And as many people are doing, which is why it's spreading, but not again, if you're vaccinated, not a great risk. The weird thing is that those policies, which seem from a technocratic point of view, very responsible. And look, I'm doing something and this is going to justify me extending my emergency powers again, which is another thing we should talk about going into 2022. But it actually actively punishes the, you know, people who are anti-vaxxers or who don't, you know, or the workers who work in these restaurants who continue to get laid off because people see that and say, I'm not going to go to restaurants too much of a pain. I don't want to wear a mask and do that. I'm not going to go back to the gym if I have to wear a mask. All of those things have us in small bore have a, have a broader social effect in terms of people's sense that life can get back to normal. I think Abe's absolutely right. I think it's important for people who are listening to the pod. A lot of people listen to the podcast and they say, you people, you're so New York and DC centric. Like we're not living that way. We're living our lives. We're here, you know, in America and we're living our lives and get, get out of there and come live here where it's, but this is where uh, uh, our system is not federalized um, in this sense, which is, New York's a very big state. DC is a politically potent state, obviously politically potent region. Um, Chicago, Los Angeles, you know, state of California. Um, bad policies have been instituted and they've been administered incompetently and all of that. But the effect of that is not, you can't shrug it off by saying, I live somewhere where no one has to show a vaccine passport to get into a restaurant. Because if that restaurant chain that you go to loses 40% of its business because people, you know, don't want to deal with the hassle or are too afraid or whatever they, however they live, or they lose 30% of their business, that chain will go out of business and then you won't have that restaurant to go to or to supply as a wholesaler or to, you know, there in that sense, we remain a very economically integrated country and you cannot, these two regimes cannot coexist. You can't have like an open country and a closed country. If part of the country or, you know, even if part of the country is even partially in this soft open, then the net effect on the open part of the country will still be a 10 or 15% decline in the effectuality of their economic output. And so um, that's where, Christine, you said like it is time for the CDC or Biden or something like that to shift gears, change the way they talk about this. Um, and it is the only way to get out of this is a national response. I wish it were otherwise, but but um, 
you know, uh, and, and all the supply chain stuff, like the supply chain stuff is not over with. Somehow we got this idea a month ago that somehow the problems had, had, had subsided. Like, I don't know if anybody has had the experience of Try to buy a dishwasher as I did because mine broke over the holidays. Yeah. Good luck to you. Good luck to you yeah. finding a dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean the and 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 that of course then contributes to inflation. Wednesday, we're gonna get the monthly inflation report for December. Remember, November had the highest inflation growth in 40 years or something like that. There's no reason to think that that number isn't gonna be worse, not better. So all of these things are all integrated in a very destructive fashion. And this is another reason why I look at this and I say like the reckoning uh, is baked in the cake because whoever you want to blame for this, you're going to have a tough time blaming Republicans and saying, well, this is really just incumbents. You know, it's like people are going to be mad and they're going to vote out the incumbents. I th- This is now too... This has become too partisan, too ideologically divided an, an approach and an issue for the revenge not to be taken on the the hawkish part, you know, the party that is more associated with regulation, control, emergency powers, all of that. And, you know, uh, we can get to what Democrats think is going to help them. And we've talked a little about this before, but before we get to that, I want to talk to you about our second advertiser today, Bolin Branch. Now, unfortunately, Noah is not here to talk to you about the buttery feel of the sheets and the beautiful color that he loves so much and and how how great they are. So I'm just going to have to sort of echo his endorsement of of, of Bolin Branch sheets because he's the one of us who who got them. Uh, these are signature sheets that feel so soft and light, you'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud and they're sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. So the signature hem sheets from Bowling Branch are a bestseller for a reason. Buttery soft, lightweight organic cotton and classic sateen weave for sheets that get softer over time. They're not too hot. They're not too cool. Perfect year-round sheets for most sleepers. Bolin Branch focuses on quality over quantity. There are no inflated thread counts here because more isn't always better. And Bolin Branch signature sheets come in seven beautiful colors in all sizes from Twin up to California King. 100% organic cotton, ethical production, thoughtful attention to every detail. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a fair price plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Experience the best sheets you'll ever feel at bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at checkout. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com, promo code commentary. So here's what I read in Axios's, in Punchbowl News and Axios this morning. Senate, this week, Biden going to Georgia this week. Voting rights, voting rights, voting rights, voting rights. And if you don't get voting rights, if the Senate votes on voting rights this week or what they're calling voting rights and doesn't get them, then we're going to move to 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 eliminating the filibuster so we can get voting rights. Uh, so uh, what does all this mean? It means that uh, Chuck Schumer has decided and Biden, they've decided to pursue a policy that they know is going to fail. 
Manchin and Sinema are not going to vote for the bill, or if they vote for the bill, one of them will vote for the bill, one of them won't vote for the bill, and then one or the other of them will not vote to eliminate the filibuster, and they know this. Uh, I'll add to that possible vote on Build Back Better, which a Manchin over the weekend quite conspicuously seemed to issue a, a bulletin from his office that whatever offer he had made to negotiate over, over Build Back Better, a $1.8 billion number that supposedly came out of him, is now off the table. And Wednesday's inflation report, which, as I say, is probably going to be really bad, then he's like, well, it's, when you crave, can't do this. Um, so they believe they're making a base play now. It's January. The vote is in November. They are trying to stir up outrage against Republicans. Republicans casting votes against voting rights. Uh, Republicans have made a proposal to go at reforming the, elector- the Electoral Reform Act of 1887, uh, through you know means that prevent to prevent things that could happening like what happened with Mike Pence on January sixth, they don't want to do that even though they could get a bipartisan bill through because they want to run on this. Who's what? Who's going to be? You're, you can't win on a bank shot like. Oh, but they, but it's be, not a. Yeah, okay. They don't think it's a bank shot. I, I actually think that okay. they they are betting on, and this is a classic Democratic. Uh, party move. They're assuming voters are so stupid that they won't want to get into the details of what the removal of the filibuster would do. Oh, it's a carve out. It's not the whole thing. They don't they they assume voters are so dumb that the message of Republicans are obstructing your right to vote is going to play. And I just think that's a miscalculate. They think it will work. They think that that fear mongering and, you know, the Jim Crow 2.0, which I'm quite sure Biden will say when he's in Georgia this week, all of that, they're just going to trot that out again, having learned nothing from the past, you know, year and a half of political culture. And I think what's interesting is that the Republicans this time are being a little smarter about responding. So McConnell has issued a memo today that tries to find a messaging path to voters about the filibuster. And it's a pretty powerful message because it's true. He says, and look, it's obviously very done in all the kind of tones of apocalyptic rhetoric in in an off-year election, uh, midterm, upcoming midterm election year does. But he says, they want to eliminate the filibuster because they they want to ram through an agenda that the most of the country doesn't support. And the only way they can do that is to get rid of this filibuster. This filibuster pr- actually protects the people because it protects our ability at, to, to function, for the system to function as it was meant to function in this way. That's not a bad message because it's clear, it's straightforward. And like I said, I think it's true. We, I mean, we've talked about why they want to eliminate the filibuster for, for a while on this podcast. So in that sense, if that message gets through, I think it's going to be harder for the Democrats to do this. Oh, look, once again, the Republicans are obstructing. It's not going to fly. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, under other circumstances, the the Democrats best hope with this strategy would be to um, sort of bait Republicans into fulfilling the role that they're trying to cast them in, um, you know, by by responding, by by going too far and responding. Something that would have happened, say, uh, if Trump were still president, um, they they would have sort of the, the Republicans would have assisted in casting themselves as villains who want to who want to crack down on uh, on your right to vote. Uh, hopefully that that they avoid that this time around. When I say a bank shot, what I mean is, I mean, I understand there is a theory that, you know, it, uh, 
midterm elections have lower turnout. So they have lower turnout. So you need to gin up your base. The base of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, is African-American or a lot of the base is African-American. And so you want to get them riled up. You get them riled up early. You get the message established. You say they're trying to disenfranchise you. It's Jim Crow 2.0, all of that. No matter what, this is not a 2022 voting issue, by which I mean there are real things going on in the country, like that we spent 20 years constantly having our politics derailed by weird ancillary side issues. Um, You know, Dubai Ports World, Obama's birth certificate, weird culture war things that then ended up taking up all this time. Inflation, crime, and and and, a, and an ongoing pandemic with a bad or you know a, um, inconstant public response. These are primary issues. Uh, they're not that complicated. Uh, Republicans and conservatives will make the case that democratic policies and liberal ideas are responsible for these problems. If Democrats and liberals don't have an answer for this, but say. No, no, the problem is that an election in 2020 in which 155 million people voted wasn't, even that wasn't fair. The most since 1900, since 1900. (laughs) I mean, the most in percentage terms, right? And, and, and the most in absolute terms by an astound, you know, by, by a very, very large number, like 20 million more people voted in, in 20. 20 then in 2016, something like that. It doesn't follow logically that you can do look, hey, squirrel when I know they don't think it's look, hey, squirrel. They think it's the most important thing in our democracy is at stake. But they have to have answers for the problems that the country is experiencing when people go to vote and vote democracy at risk isn't the problem. Well, actually, and that's a, it's also a very dangerous message for Democrats who are in charge of everything right now to be making because the Republican response isn't just they've created these problems, but the real risk to democracy is a collapsing economy, fraying social fabric, absolute mistrust in the major institutions that run this place. That's that's actually just as if you read history, much more likely than than, you know, uh, alarmist op eds in the Atlantic and the Washington Post proclaiming democracy's doom, that the real things happening in people's lives and the polarization of a lot of things that didn't used to be politically polarized. That's a far more far greater risk to democracy. I I just find it. It's going to be interesting to watch because um, as Abe writes in a brilliant piece that we will be, uh, we're closing our magazine this week, uh, his, a sequel to his, yes, this is a revolution piece from the last year. Um, the, the, both the onslaught of liberal ideas, revolutionary ideas that have gained purchase uh, since the George Floyd murder in 2020 and everything that responded to it, uh, there have been a lot of successes, but the blowback and the polit- and a lot of those successes are private sector and beyond the reach of you know ordinary people to do much about. Though we can, though there's some things that people can do about them. Um, 
but uh, the public sent the public sector response is a voting booth response, and uh, take everything together, bad, um, you know, bad economic numbers, let's say, or you know, inflation numbers, which is you know basically the economy, bad COVID response, uh, you know, crime, okay, and then you have people who have no way comfortably to feel safe expressing themselves about their discontent with what is happening here except to go into the voting booth and we saw a 13 point swing in two states in new jersey and in virginia not enough to win the governorship of new jersey but came startlingly close with a candidate that people didn't even know the name who no, you know, you couldn't even remember his name and I can't remember it now. And of course, Virginia where Yunkin won. That's two States, very different States. Very. And I just, you know, they are creating the conditions for the backlash. It's almost as though people on the right have nothing to do with it except to stand there and say, we're not them. And that, that is just as we said last week, saying I'm not Trump may be the only secret sauce that will get Biden reelected or will get a Democrat elected in 2024 who's not Biden uh, if Trump runs and is the nomination. All Republicans have to do is stand there and say, look at what they're doing. Look at what they're talking about. They're talking about stuff that has nothing to do with the troubles and everything they're doing is making it worse. Well, and, and can I, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this yeah, reminds no, no. you guys, no, I had a real Please. bee in my bonnet this morning on our text thread about this Washington Post article that one of my very dear, lovely liberal friends sent me about uh, <laughs> sort of uh, right-wingers in places, rural areas, and in, in this case, in Washington state, who are running for local office. And the whole, I read the whole thing very thoroughly, think I'm going to keep an open mind. There are definitely some crazies on the, on the extreme right who want, who think, really strange things. And the woman who was profiled in this, the, the, the conservative who had won the school board position, you know, she's a, what's called a three percenter. You know, she believes that only 3% of the, the colonists actually fought in the revolution and that they are the heirs of that, you know, uh, radical 3%. Anyway, a lot of, a lot of strange ideas. But when you actually start to read the piece, you can see how much the, the obviously well-intentioned, but, but liberal leaning journalist is trying to frame this and does frame it as a threat to democracy. But this is a woman who ran an election, won handily, uh, has has uh, said she wants to work within the system to reform it and list all the things she thinks the system is doing wrong. Um, she agreed. They 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 portray her as a crazy gun-toting anti-masker. Well, she says, no, I'm going to wear a mask in the meetings because that's required. Like she comes across as a little odd, but she repeatedly says, this is who I am. This is what I believe. But they cannot accept that she could actually be voted in in a democratic election and win. It's almost like they really want to want to put their heads in the sand about people's discomfort uh, with how things are being run right now. So they have to demonize the people who actually are what democracy gives us. We th- This woman was elected. You can you can judge her by her record when she's in office as a school board official. But the shock of Democrats looking at these local elections and seeing conservatives win is, to me, also another tell about their real concern, which not, isn't democracy. It's that the people we like, people like us aren't winning. This is bad. We, we've right. got to win. <laughs> Ezra Klein had a column yesterday in the in the 
New York Times, which said something like, Steve Bannon is onto something. And what is Steve Bannon onto? You need to run in local, you need to have people run in local races and, you know, to try to take over school boards and towns and things like that. And there's some the chairman of the Wisconsin Democratic Party who's obsessed with, you know, races and cities, uh, towns of 20,000 mayors. They need to win the mayoralty so that the mayors can appoint the electoral election clerks to make sure that they're not appointed by people who are going to rig the election for Republicans and all of that. And that's what's important. And Democratic donors are giving too much money to these stupid high-profile races that you can't win, like Amy McGrath in Kentucky, who got $90 million to run against Mitch McConnell and lost by 16 points, and it was doomed from the outset. But, you know, you can raise that money, and they need to give it to local races and all this. Well, it was Democrats and liberals, our good friend Saul Alinsky, and it was all this, that when when the 60s were over and the revolutionary fervor of the 60s died down, that serious political thinkers and serious political activists did this in state after state. They went to the root. They went, they ran for city council and school board and this and that and the other thing, and they created a class of politicians who were in the innards of American, you know, as, as, as all this got degraded, they were, they sort of got, got charge of things and, and school boards were unopposed and no one voted in school board elections. And so people who had a real interest because of their own economic circumstances, like teachers unions made sure that they had people who were friendly to them and all of this. And now the shoe is on the other foot because it took a long time to wake Republicans up to this. And there are some states in which they were woken up to it 20 years ago, like Texas, where where Republican activists took over sort of sclerotic uh, Republican mainstream uh, local parties and county parties and stuff like that because they wanted activists who were going to push a conservative, you know, openly conservative agenda. And now this is happening and it is the na- it is democracy itself, or it is our republic itself. So fine, fantastic. Let Democrats go have these fights at the local. You know what's going to happen? Turnout, by the way. Like if the if you actually have competitive races at the mayoral level, at the school board level, at this, at that, you want public participation in American life. Create circumstances in which there is competition and where Democrats or neither Democrats nor Republicans can take for granted that they own these seats and own these institutions. That is healthy. It is healthy when there's turnover at a school board level. It is not unhealthy. It means that you weren't paying attention. You weren't paying attention to what voters wanted. You weren't paying attention. You weren't creating voters of your own who support you. You were just running on entropy and entropy degrades that is the nature of entropy is that it it goes on and then it degrades over time and some other force takes it over entropy and and national celebrity so another thing that would be healthy about that kind of politics would be a kind of drawing away of of energy from the the sort of you know political celebrity uh, uh culture exactly There's, okay well we got to run i'm sorry christine no no go ahead. <laughs> no no i get to i get to interrupt you and then everyone will say why don't you let christine talk but uh but but we've we're running over and i got to take my kid to a doctor's appointment so anyway with that uh we'll be back tomorrow with you volavin and i promise today but we had to do this early so he's going to be with us tomorrow and for abe christine the absent no i'm john pot keep the candle burning